This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Uh, I was apprised of, you know, the 14-year-old who was kidnapped on Wednesday morning and uh, then found subsequently yesterday, uh, apparently, according to Global's Catherine McDonald, the uncle of this boy uh, says his nephew doesn't remember anything about his abduction. He remembers being grabbed and yelling for help. He woke up and found himself in a barn. He was wearing a construction uniform and was very cold. It's happened to most of us. Uh, no, this is a case where it's just too bewildering. I, I tell you, honest to God, I said so yesterday. I couldn't understand, A, that some people who were in charge of maybe uh, keeping track of his whereabouts by way of attendance at school seriously dropped the ball on that one. And uh, it led to the point where the, the police were notified by the parents because the kid didn't come home from school an Amber Alert triggered after midnight. Uh, the timeline is really, really perplexing to me, as is the storyline. The narrative that now says because his stepbrother, 26 years of age, was involved in some kind of a cocaine ripoff uh, totaling $4 million, that's not insignificant. On the street or anywhere, uh, that is uh, a colossal amount of coin, and uh, which might explain why maybe some folks were uh, willing to play rough. But for all of the attendant questions, uh, for which I don't have answers, we go to the experts in this matter. David Perry is one such, the CEO of Investigative Solutions Network, Inc., and Global News Radio's crime expert. David, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm do- doing very well, John. Thank you, and very interested in this story as well. <laughs> i got to ask you just an open-ended question. What do you make of it? Well, um, you couldn't have written this one if you were trying to write a book or something for Hollywood. It's... Uh... It's certainly outside of what we normally see. Um, as you know, abductions are pretty rare in the city of Toronto, and when they do happen, they're usually not motivated by everything we've heard about here. So it's a very intriguing case. Yeah, when you say they're not usually motivated by everything we've heard about here, uh, so if somebody, let's just go with uh, the alleged narrative here that there's a, a cocaine ripoff of $4 million, would the bad guys necessarily just uh, make a threat or send a signal, uh, or would they do something even more egregious? Well, I'm guessing that the abduction of this poor kid yesterday or two days ago was uh, was not their first step in trying to make good on on, on their investment with the, with his stepbrother. So I would imagine this was part of an escalation of behavior, and when they weren't getting the results they wanted, they they took it up to the highest level and. You know, I'm, I'm sure that um, they would have gone to any extent had the police not got involved, had they not, you know, worried about the fact that, uh, you know, that the police were on to them and perhaps they would be charged with a homicide. This it, this could have turned out to be very a very tragic case. So in other words, the Amber Alert kind of uh, triggered notice that uh, the kid was being sought and that was just too much heat for them. Well, I would say it was a combination of the Amber Alert and the fact that the police announced at some point yesterday that um, that they had actually been in communication, first of all, with the stepbrother and also with the suspects. So I can only imagine what that dialogue looked like, but I'm guessing it looked something like, you know, you guys don't want to step into this any further than you already have right now. Potentially you're facing kidnapping and abduction charges. If you go any further, well, you could be going to jail for the rest of your life and you'd be charged with first-degree murder. You know, it was brought up by a caller in the first hour that uh, when it comes to this amount of money, or at least uh, narcotics on the streets, $4 million, if we go with that uh, aspect of the thing, the cops would tend to know about that. Uh, is that plausible? 
it's plausible, but, you know, there are small and very large drug transactions that happen every day in this country that, of course, the police won't know about. There's, there's a small percentage of drugs that get smuggled into this country that we're aware of and that we're working on and that we actually get to seize. But, you know, this is a big deal. I, I worked in undercover drugs uh, way back in the 80s. But, uh, you know, when you're talking several kilos and $4 million worth of cocaine, this is not small stuff. This, this is a, a pretty high-level, sophisticated organization. And the stepbrother to be involved in something like that, we're told he's 26 years of age, uh, and they don't know his whereabouts, uh, even though there was that report earlier yesterday that somehow uh, they had communicated with him. I'm not sure if it was directly, just hearing the news recently now, uh, if in fact it was directly or he had communicated a message. uh, How difficult would it be for the police to find his whereabouts? Well, quite difficult. When people are truly trying to hide, uh, that's the toughest thing to do is to actually find them. And there's no doubt in my mind, based on everything we've heard, that this guy is doing a real good job of hiding because, listen, the least of his problems is the police finding him. If these people that he owes this money to, if they find him, there's only one thing that's going to happen to him. and He's not coming back, and he knows that, and that's why he's on the run, and that's why he's playing this one very close. Yeah, in in other words, he's euphemistically the dead man walking. I just wondered, you know, if in fact uh, wanting to bring this all to the surface and to light, uh, he thinks he might have some kind of immunity, not immunity from prosecution, but they wouldn't whack him because now he's sort of on the police's radar. Does that make sense? Yeah, it kind of makes sense. But, uh, you know, we've seen things like this happen right under the nose of the police where where people are, are murdered. Uh, and for far less significant amounts. We're talking, you know, people being murdered over ounces of cocaine. And this is kilos of cocaine. And, you know, we're hearing $4 million. Yeah, he's a dead man walking and he needs to do something. Running forever is not the answer, of course. He needs to do something. And it could be potentially that he comes under the wing of the Toronto police or the RCMP and he comes, steps in as a witness and he goes under a witness protection program and he becomes the, the best witness for the prosecution. But that's going to be quite a lifestyle change as well. And that's always a possibility. Um, who knows what he's doing? Who knows what communications happening, if any, with the police at this point? But my guess is they're trying to rein this guy in, bring him in, uh, make sure that he's not murdered. And then they're going to, you know, concentrate on what's really important. They've got to apprehend, arrest, and prosecute the people that did this. But he could be helpful to the police if he drops the dime on the organization, you're saying? He could be very helpful. And, you know, I mean, this is the way the world works. I mean, again, I worked undercover drugs. Things have changed since I was there. But, you know, the, the process itself hasn't changed. Everybody turns on somebody. And that's just the reality in the criminal world. If you arrest somebody today and they have uh, a couple of ounces of cocaine in their pocket and they're out on bail and and uh, if they want to stay out and, and not be incarcerated until their trial, well, they're going to tell you who they got the coke from or who the next person up the ladder is. And, and they just all turn on each other on a very regular basis, even at the highest levels. I mean, it's just like when we see organized crime prosecutions, people that were involved within those organizations who you know, would have been killed for any disloyalty that they showed uh, are now turning evidence for for the prosecution. And that's under some extraordinary circumstances and usually under a witness protection program. So I wouldn't be the least bit shocked to see that's what happens in this case. Yeah. And so doing that, putting somebody into witness protection, uh, how difficult or easy is that to do? 
You know what? It's not difficult to do at all. Uh, Toronto Police, like any major service, has a section that it, it does exactly that. There are certain officers, and I know some of them who've done it in the past, that are assigned to that very task. They work uh, out of intelligence. They work with people who, you know, if they're going to deal with and, and support the police and be part of the prosecution team, so they've, they've changed teams dramatically. Uh, we know what happens in some cases, and of course not every case, but in, in some rare cases we know what happens to people that do that, and their their life would be in jeopardy. So this is a case where that's probably quite likely, and he would be a perfect candidate to come into the fold and fall under the protection of the police and to be you know removed in terms of his identity, put somewhere where nobody can find him, and when he's required for court, he would be protected, brought to court, and when he's finished court, the same thing he'd be back in that witness protection program you know for a very long period of time and sometimes indefinitely what about the family would they still be in danger you know there's always that yes i mean potentially the family can be you know as we saw in this case i mean this was the the prime example that the family was in danger even though none of them had any knowledge or, or any involvement in the criminal element here um, so, yes, they, they could still be in danger, and what could happen to them? Well, they could be involved in, in uh, some protection from the police as well, and we've seen that before. Again, with David Perry, he's Global News Radio's crime expert, again, the CEO of Investigative Solutions Network. So when we hear now that uh, the 14-year-old boy's uncle says his nephew doesn't remember anything about his abduction, remembers being grabbed and yelling for help, woke up and found himself in a barn wearing a construction uniform and very cold, doesn't remember. Uh, what do you make of that? I mean, is that maybe uh, the path of least resistance? In fact, uh, you know, you want to be communicating that, that, hey, I know nothing, I see nothing, I hear nothing? You know, it could be that. It could be the message that uh, you don't have anything to worry about from this family. We're not going to tell anybody or deal with the police. And it could be, you know, just from the sheer trauma. I've seen people go through traumatic events where um, they're so damaged by what happened to them that they do actually have, you know, short-term memory loss. Or he could have been drugged. So there could be many reasons why he doesn't remember much after being abducted. Uh, and I, I wouldn't want to venture a guess on any of them. It, you know, I, I think the one that probably uh, sounds the most realistic is that perhaps he was drugged. David, what do you make of the idea that, you know, they burned the car uh, and it was abandoned in a field up there in Caledon? Wouldn't forensics be able to uh, go over this with a fine-tooth comb? I mean, does that does that make any sense that you would try to dispose of a vehicle that way? The good news for all of us, John, is that we don't catch a lot of criminals because they're smart. <laughs> we catch them because they make an awful lot of mistakes and they do stupid things. They you know, they abduct somebody. They don't really have a plan. They they do the abduction, and then when the heat's on them, they start to panic. And during that panic, they start trying to destroy evidence and get rid of things and disassociate themselves from the crime. And in doing so, they make plenty of mistakes. So forensically, who knows what they'll get from that car? Fire is, a, you know, a pretty good way to destroy evidence, but it doesn't always destroy all of it. And uh, who knows what they're going to get from that. But I think the police are on to who it is. I think they've already communicated with the people that were responsible for the abduction, and I think it's just a matter of time they're going to have them in custody. But uh, I, I always kind of chuckle to myself. I've been in this business for such a long time, and you know, you hear about professional hits and very sophisticated crime rings and all of that kind of stuff. At the end of the day, 
uh, criminals that just aren't all that smart. They make a lot of mistakes and they leave a trail that the police can follow and eventually catch up to them. Yeah, I have to uh, suppose at this point there's a whole lot happening at street level that we're not privy to right now. But uh, Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of intel being swamped. David, great to uh, get your insights as always. Really appreciate your time. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Anytime, John. David Perry, CEO of Investigative Solutions Network, Inc., Global News Radio's crime expert. Just to recap, uh, the uncle of the 14-year-old boy, subject of the Amber Alert, says nephew does not remember anything about his abduction. He does remember being grabbed and yelling for help, woke up and found himself in a barn wearing a construction uniform, and that he was very cold. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.